Hey church, thanks for joining me as we continue to walk through the Great Awakening, living in light of Revelation. This is a strange time. Uh, it's a time where uh, many are asking, is this, are these eschatological times? Meaning, are these end times? Meaning, with all that's going on politically, pandemically, and I mean, even a few months ago, we looked outside and the sun was blocked by smoke from fires in, in the middle of BC. I mean, that sounds so apocalyptic. And the, the question was posed several times to me and I know to other pastors online, uh, do, do I think this is apocalyptic, end times kind of stuff? And so it, it made sense to me uh, during this time to walk through the book of Revelation and hopefully remove some of the fear that is often associated with the book, try to take it in bite-sized pieces and, and in a way that is, is helpful to us in our discipleship and in our following of Jesus during, during strange times like today. One of the things we need to remember is that this book, the book of Revelation, the Revelation of John, was meant to bring comfort. Sadly, it's been used in, in many of our experiences, for those of us who grew up in the church, uh, depending on our background, it's been used to instill fear and it's been used to instill worry. But that is the opposite of what the letter was meant to do. It, it speaks of victory. It speaks of perseverance, the lamb upon the throne, uh, the comfort for all those who follow Jesus, the lamb of God. So we need to keep that in mind, that these words were written to a group of early Christ followers, wondering where Jesus was and when he would return. Times were difficult. The power of Rome and, and the culture were, were out to snuff out Christianity. And the church was asking, God, where are you in all of this? Uh, the, the, they were experiencing what, what we would call today Advent, anticipation, longing for the coming again of Jesus the Christ. When will all these promises be fulfilled? When will Jesus show himself as king? Now, you and I, we tend to think of Advent as, a, as an anticipation or a, a reliving of the arrival of Jesus at Christmas. But the early church looked forward to a second coming of Christ, as we should when he would return to put all things right. They were hurting. They were longing for relief, like many of us are today. And that is when we are primed for Advent. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. So in the midst of world chaos, all that's around us right now, I'll ask you, are you troubled in your soul? Do you feel poor, imperfect, wanting something greater to come? Then you are primed for Advent, much like the early church. Uh, John, the author of Revelation, is, is writing to seven churches, we learned in, in the previous chapter. Not because there were only seven churches in the area, but because in apocalyptic, poetic literature in John's day, seven is the symbolic number of completion. And we'll see this so many times as we walk through Revelation. So when John writes to these seven churches in Asia Minor, in, in modern-day Turkey, the number seven should, should trigger in our mind that this is a letter to all churches. All churches in John's day and all churches, I would argue, throughout history and in our world today. Each of these letters is really about Advent, asking the question, how are we to live until Jesus returns? How are we to live until Jesus returns? The problems and, and the concerns that Jesus has for these churches are the same kinds of problems that every church at every time and in every culture experiences and needs to be on their guard 
again. So it's important for us to listen to these letters for us today. Jesus tells John first to write a letter to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a large city for its day. Over 250,000 people lived there at the time of the writing of this letter. It was, it was an urban center. It was one of the emperor's favorite towns, cities. It boasted a temple to the emperor Domitian. A temple, you say, yes, an, a temple to the, the emperor of the day. The emperor Domitian was notoriously paranoid, uh, worried about his power being taken, and he, so he demanded worship from his subjects, all of his subjects. And so he didn't care who you th- said you worshipped. And it was the practice of all who wanted to live in peace with the empire, with the government and their neighbors, to visit the temple of Domitian, to spread incense on the altar of Domitian and proclaim Caesar Curios, the emperor is Lord. It was the practice before stepping into the marketplace, before you entered to do business in Domitian's world, to sprinkle incense on his altar and proclaim Domitian is God. So allegiance to the emperor, to the government, brought prosperity and safety, but at what cost, the church was asking. What did it cost a Christian to side with Domitian? Ephesus was also known for the worship of the goddess Artemis. In fact, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was considered one of the seven wonders of the world in its day. It measured 350 by 180 feet. It's about the size of a modern-day football field. Her statue was depicted with, with two dozen eggs on her torso because she was the goddess of omelets. No, she wasn't. She was, she was the goddess of fertility. <laughs> you wanted children, you wanted wealth, you wanted a good crop, a good hunt. Well, go and give Artemis some incense. and Proclaim your allegiance to her. So listen, if you wanted comfort under the government, make sure you gave allegiance to Domitian. If you wanted to make sure you experienced pleasures in life and, and got all you wanted out of life, go and give your allegiance to Artemis. Ephesus had you covered, like our modern world does. And the church in this city was about to get a message from Jesus, a massive tearing back of the veil, an apocalypse to see things as they truly are. Who is truly Lord? Is it Domitian? But also a special word, especially for this church. Because as we learned last week, the cosmic cosmic Christ, the all-powerful Jesus, sustaining all things by his power is also the present near Christ. We need to remember that. He sees the difficulty of his people who are in his his church, but who live near and under the fear and temptation of the world, living in the longing of Advent, the coming of Christ. So let's look at at the word to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Jesus says this to John. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, to the messenger to the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Man, there is so much here. 
And first of all, we're, we're reminded, as in the previous chapter that we looked at last week, that Jesus, who holds all of creation together, is with his church. He is walking among the lampstands, which represent the church we learned last week. Like, it's like a priest checking on the lamps in the temple to make sure that they are burning well. Do they need to be trimmed? Do they need oil? Do they need to be relit? Do they need to be replaced because they're no longer giving light? And with a, a pierce, the piercing eyes that Christ has to see everything, he states, he, and he starts by stating to them, encouragement. He gives them encouragement. He says in verses 2 and 3, I've seen the works that you've done in faith, the way you've toiled for the faith. For me, you have this patient endurance. They're an active church. They have what one theologian calls embodied allegiance. Their faith in Jesus, it, it's not just to, to give voice and allegiance, that they're actually animated by the gospel. They're the church that everyone else looks to and says, let's steal their model for success and then we'll have a good church too. They have a patient endurance. They don't give up. In the middle of persecution and threats, pressure to give in to Domitian and Artemis worship, they've held the faith. They've, they've walked the straight and narrow. They've shown strength and resilience and their light for now is shining. Jesus says, you have a love for the truth. They're a church that loves the truth. They, they don't simply listen to whatever is said to them. And, and I love this because this was not always the case in the church of Ephesus. We know that. In fact, at, at one point, Ephesus was known for its false teachers. 30 or 40 years earlier, the, the pastor of the church, Timothy, that we know of in, in Acts in the New Testament, received a letter from the Apostle Paul, his father in the faith. And Paul was encouraging him to fight the good fight against those who were teaching different doctrines and pulling people away from the gospel. We read part of Paul's warning in his first letter to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And in a second letter, it's as if Paul goes on to say, and, and don't rest, Timothy. You're, you're going to continue to have work in this area. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will find people who just tell them what they want to hear. It sounds like Facebook. It sounds like the, the echo chamber that many might find themselves on Facebook. Just tell me more that I'm right and that I can continue to believe the way I do. And so Timothy must have done a good job leading at the church in Ephesus because here, 30 or 40 years later, Jesus is able to say, good job. Good job, church. In this way, you have been obedient. You have been careful. In verse 6, Jesus says, you've hated the, work, the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know a lot about the Nicolaitans, but, but we know that they had an influence in other churches as well since they're mentioned again in, in Jesus' words to the church in Pergamum in chapter 2, verse 15. They were seemingly a group who, who had influence and were drawing people into immorality, telling them that they could, they could say yes to Jesus and then just live as they pleased. There was no moral obligation. So eat, drink, be merry, do whatever you, you want. The gospel has you covered. But the church in Ephesus knew their theology. They knew a counterfeit. Well done, Jesus says. But then Jesus says, even though you've got that right, I do have a critique and it's an important one. Just getting all your theology right, that's not the only thing I'm after. He says in Revelation 2 verse 4, I do have this against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. 
Some of your translations that you have of the Bible might, might say this, say you've abandoned your first love. Some of you remember what it, what it was like, what it felt like when you first came to have faith in Jesus, this, this unprecedented love and acceptance. There was a zeal and an excitement. There was meaning and purpose. You wanted to share what Jesus has done in your life. You wanted to, to read. You wanted to worship and pray. You saw creation differently. And maybe for some of us, we wonder, where is that? That experience was, it was, it was a gateway, but it wasn't the actual experience of my Christian life. It was all exciting at first, and then maybe you lament that. You want to go back to that. You know, I remember the day I came home to tell my parents that I had met this new girl, this beautiful girl, and she was now my girlfriend, and my dad asked me, well, what's her name? And I said, Lelania. And he said, what? I said, Lelania. And I'll never forget his words. He looked me straight in the eyes, and very seriously, he said, is this going to last long enough that I need to learn her name? <laughs> when Lelania and I first met, we were hugging and kissing. And I remember the first time I kissed Lelania. It was the most wonderful rush I had ever experienced. It, it was the day we got married. It was not. I kissed her before that. But a few weeks after, we, we had made it clear that we were boyfriend and girlfriend. We had confessed this to each We had confessed our like to each other. We were standing at a bus stop and, a bus stop and saying goodbye. And I remember we kissed and then... We kept kissing and we kissed a little longer and I missed a bus and we completely forgot that there was actually a third person with us, a friend of ours. So I'm, I'm sorry, Lisa. It's a, it's a 30 year old apology. We drove our parents and our siblings nuts. They would ask us to stop showing so much affection for each other. Well, we are 31 years into our relationship and I am proud to say that this week, this week, our children have walked into the kitchen. They have found their parents in full embrace, kissing and said, gross, that's gross, don't do that. But I, sent, I have a feeling of first love when, when we do that. We, we, we continually remind each other of the blessing it is to still desire each other's embrace and each other's company. But our embrace, I've gotta tell you, the revisiting of first love over and over and over is not done in a vacuum. It doesn't come easy. It would not exist without a revisiting over and over of what is important a continued removal of things that could potentially do damage and cause division in our marriage. We have an imperfect marriage. We have an imperfect marriage. I have mistreated my wife in word and deed this week. So our relationship does not come without times of confession. Our relationship does not come without times of repentance, of reorienting over and over and, or, uh, and over to maintain first love takes work. See, we, we don't like the word works in the church. We think it's negative because we, we've misunderstood what that means. Works are for the benefit of relationship, not to gain it, but because you are already in it and you want to sustain that relationship in love. See, in our relationships, in our marriages, and in our relationship with Christ, we can never think that sustaining first love comes without remembering, without repenting, and without laboring, without real work. And that's Jesus' challenge in verse 5. Jesus offers this challenge. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. Go back to the first love the way it was at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. These are the demands made of first love. Remembering, repenting, working. These are the demands of sustaining and nurturing first love. 
remember. Remember, reminding ourselves of the gospel daily, singing it in worship, reading it in scripture, praying through it, speaking to God, not once a week, a daily engagement with our first love. First love also demands repentance. Repentance is not a one-off. It's a daily practice of reflecting on, on what entangles us and draws us away from Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12. And laying aside those things that are getting in the way. First love also demands that we do the real hard work, doing the hard work of relationship. Saying no to, to finding our belonging and our allegiance in the political and the ideological currents of the world. Saying no to those things that would seek to do damage to our relationship with Christ. Jesus says, if, if you do these things, if you, if you persevere, if you're victorious in persevere, persevering and, and preserving your first love, you will eat from the tree of life, he says. I have a promise for you. He offers this beautiful promise in verse 7. He who has ears, let him hear. Ephesus, you've been, you've been known as, as a church who will not listen to false teachers. You, you've put your hands over your ears when false teachers come and, and try, to, try to draw you away. But the true curios, the true Lord, has something to say to you. So you need to listen to what I say. The one who conquers by truth and perseverance, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is why we need to know the Old Testament, right? Jesus points to the, to the first story of rebellion in all of Scripture. Uh, a simple instruction given by God to Adam and Eve who were in community with him in the garden that they could eat of all the trees of the garden, take all the blessing of the Garden of Eden, but not the tree of life. And Adam and Eve, of course, in a move of independence where they want to govern themselves and want to put themselves in place of God, they, they disobey. Jesus says, my aim is to reverse the brokenness, is to reverse the curse that followed. That's the, the telos of the Lamb. That is where my story is heading. So return to your first love. The long-awaited reunion of humanity with her creator that was stolen in the Garden of Eden, then that this loving Lord offers a return to the communion in the garden is what the Lamb offers, where relationship with God and fullness of creation is, is fully experienced. That's what the season of Advent yearns for. It was the purpose of Christ's coming, not so we could sing nostalgic songs once a year, but so that we could proclaim his worth and rejoice in our rescue daily, and so we could live in relationship daily with him, our first love. As I mentioned, there, there have been times in my marriage where I've had to sit with my wife and repent. There have been times in our relationship where we have cried together because parts of our relationship had drifted away, drifted apart. There are consistently times of remembering, times of repentance, and doing the day-to-day -day work to sustain our first love. This message to the church of Ephesus is a message for the church in 2020 to check our allegiance to this world and all it offers. The promises of Domitian, the promises of Artemis, it's a message to take stock, to remember what it was like when we first fell in love with Jesus, to remember where and how we, we fell away and, and uh, allowed the light that shines like the sun, allow it to expose the ways that we've wandered. It's an invitation to repent, literally to turn away from whatever it is that is replacing our first love and to look back into his marvelous, beautiful, accepting face.
and it's a call and an invitation to work and nurture that love again. But salvation doesn't come by works. That's what Paul said, right? Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a, as a result of works so that no one may boast. The question for you and I is what kind of faith do we want to live in? Do we just want the, a kind of faith that's a get out of jail free card? Like a broken marriage that's a marriage in name only? Or do we want to live in the kind of salvation that includes a relationship with our Savior now? Our first love. That's the challenge. To Ephesus, it's a challenge to you and I. As I say goodbye to you today, I, I want you to take a few moments after the message in silence, wherever you are. Even if you're with a small group. And, and I want you to invite the Spirit of God, the, the all-seeing, all-knowing eyes of Christ to expose all that is in us, that, that keeps us from our first love. And now also allow the words of, of truth that come from, from his mouth, the words of truth that are delivered in the gospel to seep into our hearts and minds and re remind us of our first love and ask that the Spirit of God would animate us to work and protect this love that Christ fought so hard to show us. Now, church, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and may he give you peace. I love you, church. I hope to see you soon. God bless you.